Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry, uh, and this is a new show on the Channel 3900 Podcast Network. Um, this is something I dreamed up over the extended spring break that we're having here at Bethel because I was starting to realize um, we're all kind of trapped in our homes uh, because of COVID-19. Uh, and because of that, there's two things that are happening. We're missing some of the sort of collective cultural experience things. I mean, we're doing our best on things like um, like uh, Google Hangouts and things like that. But we're, we're missing some, some interaction that way. Uh, and we also might have some time on our hands. Uh, I've noticed with things like uh, some work commitments, church commitments, things like that, even family commitments beyond our immediate family, uh, we find ourselves at home a lot more. Um, so I thought maybe we could do something to help people think about how to spend that time uh, well. And I thought maybe we could watch some movies together. Uh, I've always loved the idea of going back to the late 80s and walking into the video archives uh, video store in Manhattan Beach, California to rent some movies. And behind the counter would be a young, not yet famous Quentin Tarantino ready to <laughs> dispense some wisdom and recommendations. Now, sadly, I don't have a time machine, but I do have the next best thing. And that is Barrett Fisher. Um, so the idea behind this podcast is that each week I, along with our listeners, uh, will walk into Barrett's video store and engage in a little conversation about film. And he'll give us a recommendation for the week of a film that's pretty easily available on a streaming platform. And then next week we'll come back and we'll discuss that film and get our next recommendation. So let's step into the video store and meet Barrett Fisher. Barrett, how are you doing? I'm well, Sam, thanks. How are you holding up in this uh, world of social distancing, quarantine? How has your life changed? Well, you know, um, I'm an introvert. So this is kind of an introvert's dream, actually. I feel bad saying that I don't miss face-to-face -face as much as maybe I should, although I'm getting a lot of that through the, through the uh, computer screen these days. But I'm holding up pretty well. I'm fortunate that uh, my wife also has an academic job. She's also holed up with me. And uh, we actually get along pretty well, so that's been okay. Yeah, well, you're among friends with the, and I think I actually said the exact words, it's kind of an introvert's dream on election shock therapy yesterday, because... Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We're uh, later on today, I'm recording a podcast with Sarah Shady uh, about Albert Camus' The Plague um, that's going to be coming out later in the week. And uh, as I was rereading that, I was thinking there are some people who thrive in these moments. And it's like, oh, this is like the moment of being sort of shut in and just having kind of my, my world getting even smaller in certain ways uh, is nice for me. I mean, it's terrible what's happening. But yeah. Um, so Barrett, what if we're going to talk about movies, tell me what's the last movie you watched? I think the last movie I watched, I want to be sure I get this right, I believe it was uh, uh, it was Train to Busan. Okay. The, uh, yeah, the South Korean uh, horror film. Um, it's one of the, I'm not particularly a aficionado of the zombie movie genre, but I have watched a number of them, including, uh, you know, going back to George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Um, and I, I chanced upon Train to Busan because after the Oscars, uh, the Star Tribune ran a story a couple of weeks ago of 10 other South Korean films you should watch. And somehow I missed it when Busan came out because it was evidently a pretty big hit in 2016. So it's, uh, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really good for that kind of film. Yeah, uh, I will say the last movie that I watched, it's sort of an odd choice, uh, but it has to do with what I was doing over spring break. So over spring break, uh, my family and I went to Tucson, Arizona, 
And one of the things we did there is we visited Old Tucson, which is the movie studio or the movie set there. Um, so lots of westerns were were filmed there. So um, after we did that and we were um, sort of holed up, our, our family watched the movie Tombstone, the 1994 movie Tombstone, in part just to see Old Tucson in a movie. Um, I'm not a huge fan of westerns particularly, so I, I had to pick one that, um, at least in my memory, was really good. Uh, it was it was fine. I. Uh, I, I, Val Kilmer's great in that movie. The rest of it's fine, <laughs> but yeah. So it's maybe not the most elevated last movie to watch, but it was pretty good. Well, if you, as long as you mention Westerns, I guess I'll just mention three quickly that people might want to check out. Um, even if you're not a big Western fan, but I, uh, I really like Stagecoach, the uh, John Ford film from 1939, mm -hmm. which, which reportedly Orson Welles watched 40 times in preparation for Citizen Kane. Um, and then even though there's elements of it being dated, I think The Searchers uh, from 56 also a sure. film is really good. And then uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance uh, is kind of an anti-Western. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so Barrett, uh, what is your history with film? I, I've talked with you, uh, I think I've interviewed you a couple times in the past, uh, and we definitely got on film. And when I thought about this, yours was the first name that came to my mind. Um, so why do I associate you with film? What is your history as a, a film uh, viewer, would you call yourself a film scholar? I, I, I get nervous about calling myself a film scholar. It's just like I don't quite call myself a birder yet. I say I like to look at birds, but I'm not exactly a birder. I don't know if I'm a film scholar. How about an um, amateur film scholar? Amateur film scholar. There I mean, I've done a little bit of publishing, but not necessarily in, in real um, real film journals, more for popular audiences. Sure. Um, but I guess, you know, there's a couple or there's a couple origin stories for me. One is kind of the personal origin story. And it goes back to when I was in ninth grade uh, and I was um, I was going to a school in the out uh, in New Haven. And I had a friend who um, definitely hung out with more mature company than the average ninth grader. He had a friend at Yale who had seen uh, Stanley uh, Kubrick's Clockwork Orange, uh, which in those days was actually still X rated. Um, and uh, he was telling me about this amazing film he'd seen. And as he, as he kind of analyzed it for me, I, it, it opened a door for me that I'd never thought of before that film could actually be uh, a serious art form. And so hmm. I think it was actually hearing about a film I'd never seen that actually turned me on to the idea that films are something you would, what you would actually want to watch and think and talk about. And then I was fortunate that New Haven had a very good art theater at the time. So mm -hmm. I absorbed a lot of uh, Italian, uh, foreign films, especially Italian cinema. And somehow along the lines, I got interested in, in Orson Welles. And I can remember watching Citizen Kane back when classic films were still on broadcast TV. So that was kind of the, the personal impetus for me. And then in terms of a more, a somewhat more scholarly interest, that really started when I was uh, teaching, started teaching Shakespeare 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I got interested in the performance aspects of Shakespeare, not only theatrical, but cinematic. And so I actually uh, uh, designed and got to teach once a course called Shakespeare in Film, which was about uh, filmic, uh, cinematic adaptations of Shakespearean uh, plays. So th those two things kind of worked to get, have worked together to spur my interest. Sure. Do you have a favorite uh, Shakespeare film adaptation? I'm just not, if you've done, taught a course on this, I'm curious if you have any that stand out to you as particularly. Yeah, um, there's a there, there's several. I, I I guess I would say that I I've always really um, loved Wells's Othello, um, okay. uh, and then I I think his Chimes at Midnight is is really partic particularly brilliant. 
And then if I think about other directors, a film that I initially disliked, but have actually come to like quite a bit is Michael Amorata's version of Hamlet uh, with Ethan Hawke. I think that's okay. particularly good. Huh. Okay. Um, so you, Barrett, for those of uh, those who don't know us or can't see our picture, I'm going to say this delicately. You're a few more years my senior. Um, so I grew up in the world of home video. I mean, I think the VCR came pretty wide, widely in about 84, 85. So I was like seven or eight years old. So almost my whole experience as a film watcher, uh, there was the thought of accessing film was pretty easy. Um, before that, you talked a little bit about, how, you know, an art house cinema you could go to, like, how did somebody engage? And this is, I'm honestly asking this question, like, how did somebody engage with the history of film before you could so easily get your hands on it? It was, it, it was, it was a lot harder. Um, as I said, yeah, you, you, you sort of had to hope that something would come on TV, which actually reminds me, I'm going to, I'm going to revise my origin story a little bit. Cause now I remember that even before that friend told me about, um, uh, Clockwork Orange, I remember encountering Jimmy Cagney on uh, late night TV and one of his early films called Angels with Dirty Faces. Mm -hmm. just, it's absolutely falling in love with that. But yeah, you know, basically you were you were relying on what was shown on, on broadcast TV. Uh, and then if you were fortunate enough, as I was, to have an art house nearby or being outside New Haven, Yale University, uh, the Yale Film Society would show those films. But sure. you know what's interesting, a slight, a slight um, bunny trail here, Sam. But what's interesting is the way in which things like VHS and later DVD have not only transformed uh, the accessibility of films like that, but it's also transformed film analysis. Because sure. in the old days, uh, when I was younger, if you wanted to analyze a film, you simply had to watch it over and over uh, if you wanted to focus on a particular scene. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas now, you know, you simply freeze it, freeze the DVD and zoom in or whatever you, you need to do. So it's, it's actually changed how people analyze and, uh, and even receive film in ways that it's, it's, it's interesting because in a sense, it's kind of contrary to the medium because, sure. film, because film is, you know, so time bound. In fact, mm -hmm. the director Tarkovsky called it sculpting in time. Uh, but the ability we have now to turn film from a, vi from a, a, a visual or from a temporal to a spatial medium uh, is really kind of quite interesting. Yeah. So if you think about your life it, with, with the idea that you couldn't always uh, have access to everything, what's the, can you think of one of the most like anticipated things for you where it's like, I've heard of this thing and I really want to see it. And, and it was that, that like where that anticipation built up for you, whether it was a movie that was coming out and you were excited for or something from the past that you'd heard of and just you could never see it and then all of a sudden it, you were able to get your hands on it or get your eyes on it yeah i guess maybe um uh, the most recent example I, I, okay i'm going to give you two examples again one example from my past um when i was in high school and um one of the local stations was showing citizen kane and mm -hmm. i'd heard all about citizen kane i'd never seen citizen kane uh and uh, in fact i invited my friend who told me about clockwork orange to come over and watch citizen kane with me uh he never showed up <laughs> uh, well, I, I did that by myself. The, the other one I would say, though, would be uh, somewhat more recently, maybe 10 years ago or so, um, Andre Tarkovsky's masterpiece, Andre Rubilov, which runs about, uh, there's various prints, but it runs to about three hours. And this is back when the Minneapolis Film Society was still on Oak Street. And that mm -hmm. was brought to that theater. And that was a, that was a big ante moment of anticipation for me to see that. Very, very cool. So what we're going to do in uh, in today's episode, since we don't have a movie to talk about, since this is our first one, 
uh, is Barrett and I each put together a list of five movies that we love. Um, so these are not the five movies we think are the best. These are not our five necessarily our five favorite movies, but the things that came to mind when we thought of five movies that we love. Um, so we're just, I think we're just going to go kind of back and forth um, going through our list. These are in no uh, particular order, uh, but do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. And even though they're in no particular order, I guess I'll, uh, I guess I'll just start with a film from one of my favorite directors. Um, there's a number of directors uh, for whom I've, I've, wa I've watched their entire, uh, their entire oeuvre. And so this would be Stanley Kubrick. I mentioned him earlier with Clockwork Orange. But um, high on any list of films that I put together is always Dr. Strangelove. And um, first of all, I think Dr. Strangelove is a perfect film. I, I don't think there's a single scene, line, or, uh, or moment that you could cut from that film that, wouldn't, that something wouldn't be lost, nor is there anything you need to add. The other reason I love that film is um, I, when, I, when I, I rediscovered it or rewatched it several years ago when I was teaching a film course, and I had thought that because the film deals with the issue of mutually assured destruction and the um, nuclear arms race between the U.S. and uh, Russia, and it was set in 1964, I thought this film was going to be dated. Um, and yet what, what Kubrick is satirizing in that film, because it's a very dark satire, is still entirely relevant to the world today. And so that's another reason I, I love it, because it really, it really doesn't date. I remember the first time that I saw that, I was probably in late high school or college. Um, and my, my, my first takeaway was, I, I was amazed how funny George C. Scott is in that movie. Because I think of, I, I thought of him as sort of this old curmudgeonly guy. Like I hadn't seen much of the stuff he was, I think I saw him like in A Christmas Carol or something. And I was like, oh, that's, that's the kind of person he is in that. And then he was so funny in, uh, in in uh, Doctor Strangelove, and obviously Peter Sellers is amazing um, in that. I will say the last time that I saw Doctor Strangelove was kind of an ideal experience. We were in we were teaching uh, our study abroad course, and we were in Paris. And Chris Gertz and I always look for a film to go to. So we uh, one year we went to Rear Window and invited students, and I think a couple came. And then one year it was Doctor Strangelove. So this was in 27, 2019 or 2017, excuse me, um, we, it was like a, a 10 p.m. movie at a little tiny theater in uh, in Paris, and it was perfect. Well, George C. Scott never forgave Kubrick because um, the, Kubrick had him, uh, you know, do, Kubrick was, was always shooting multiple takes, exhausting his actors. And so he told Scott, you know, to play one of the scenes in the war room, the one where he does sort of a somersault, you know, right. to play it different ways and play it as broadly as possible. And of course, that's the, the take that Scott took, that uh, Kubrick used, and Scott just just hated that. Um, the other funny thing for me with uh, with Strangelove is I've shown it to students who have not realized by the end of the film that Peter Sellers is also playing the president. Um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Well, uh, the the first one uh, on my list, then I will uh, I'll pair with yours because I also have a Stanley Kubrick movie. He's uh, somebody I I kind of came to a little bit late. Uh, beyond, I mean, I saw Strange Love, but I don't know that I'd seen a lot of his other movies until maybe the last ten years or so. And he's uh, become one of my favorites. I often think about like if you had to t take one director's films, you know, if you were on a desert island, like he would be interesting. But I think I would have a hard time watching if I was alone watching <laughs> some of this stuff, especially over and over. But one of my absolute favorite movies uh, is 2001: A Space Odyssey uh, from mm -hmm. 1968. 
Uh, I saw this originally in sixth grade. Our My science teacher showed it to us. I think he just needed a couple days off because uh, it seemed apropos of nothing we were studying. Um, but I, and I remember watching it at that point and just feeling utterly confused what this was, why we were watching it. It was broken up over probably three or four days of, you know, a 50 minute class. Mm. Um, and I didn't think much of it. And I, I remembered the ending, but I didn't know what to do with it. And then we didn't unpack it at all. It was like a Friday when it ended and then we just went on with life. And that's kind of where it sat until probably five or six years ago when I started to um, be more interested in Kubrick. And I went back and watched it and it was my, um, my family was all up at the cabin, but I was, I was still in Minnesota because I was, I had to work because uh, I was teaching. So I was alone and I started it at about uh, eight o'clock at night and I just sat and I was just captivated by it. And it, and, and since then it is a movie that I watch every summer. I will pick a night um, usually when I'm alone and I will sit and watch it. And it just, it, it, I love the way that I just get sort of enveloped in the movie. I love how sort of slow and quiet it is. Um, I will say this is a movie that I shared with my kids. My son kind of liked it. My daughter still uh, claims that I punished her by having her watch this. So <laughs> maybe at some point I can get her to love it. I, I mean, I was I was blown away that this is, I mean, this is uh, nine years before before Star Wars. And but I watched that movie and it's like, how did he not just have to go to space to shoot this? Like it it looks amazing. It's a year before the moon landing, and it looks it looks amazing. Um, and yeah, I think I'm just drawn into the, the quietness of it. And I, I love, I love when you can sort of settle into a long movie and it doesn't, uh, and it takes its time. Well, it's funny you mentioned the moon landing because Kubrick said after, um, after the, the moon landing and we are after the Apollo astronauts shot the earth from space, Kubrick said that he wished he'd made the earth look more blue in terms right. of the effects. So actually, Sam, you just said two things that prompted a little, a little, another little bunny trail. I want to go down for just a second. Sure. One, one is, and this connects with an earlier comment you, you made, and that is the experience of watching a film and looking forward to watching a film. And I remember, um, oh, maybe 20 years ago, one of the theaters in, uh, in the area that's now closed down uh, showed 2001 in the theater. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it in the theater. And so I still think as a film watcher, going to a theater and seeing a film on a big screen is still to me the sine qua non of, of, of film, film viewing. And, and the other thing you mentioned I think is important to think about is how we often do ritualize our film viewing. So, mm -hmm. so every, every Christmas, and I say this at my peril, but I'm gonna say it anyway, Every Christmas, I watch uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead, um, and I I usually do that uh, by my myself. My family tends not to join me. Um, I actually have an interpretation of the film that connects it to the nativity story. But at any, any rate, I think the idea that you know here's a film we watch regularly. We used to watch as a family. We used to watch Christmas Story, you know, mm -hmm. um, around that time of year. So, hmm. so what's next on your list? Well, let's lighten the mood. Um, and let's go to a classic screwball comedy. Um, for those of you who don't know, screwball comedy kind of had its heyday in the late 30s, early 40s. And then it, it, it's kind of a, a genre that turns up in, uh, in, in more modern versions as well. So in the 70s, Peter Vogdanovich, What's Up Doc is an example of a more recent screwball comedy. Coen Brothers kind of tried to do it with Hudsucker Proxy in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, screwball comedy, uh, the classic screwball comedies often feature people talking very fast. 
and they usually have uh, strong female characters, which is one of the things I like about the one I'm going to recommend, which is Bringing Up Baby. Um, it's Catherine Hepburn and um, Cary Grant, uh, and it's uh, it's escapist. It is escapism at its best because it's just downright funny, but at the same time, it's also extraordinarily clever. And one of the things I like about it is it's it's even in 1938, it's meta-cinematic. It's already making references to other films, and it makes these wonderful references throughout the, the movie to Cary Grant's persona as Cary Grant, because in the film, he's a character named David who's a paleontologist, and he wears these, these, spec, these, gla these, uh, these glasses that I think are supposed to make him look a little bit like Harold Lloyd, the silent film star. Uh, and it, several point, at one point in the movie, Catherine Hepburn takes off his glasses and says, oh, but David, you're so much more handsome without your glasses. And it's a clear reference to the fact that this is Cary Grant pretending, <laughs> to, be, uh, pretending to be a, paleontolo a paleontologist. Um, in, the same, in the same vein, at one point late in the film, uh, Catherine Hepburn uh, goes into an act as a, uh, as a gangster mall out of the gangster films of the time. So... In addition to that, the film has so much verbal cleverness that when I have, again, when I've shown it with students, I've actually, they've actually asked me to turn on the subtitles so they can follow the dialogue, um, sure. partly because partly it's fast, but also because most of, most of this generation um, hasn't been exposed to comedies whose humor is largely verbal as opposed to visual. And sure. so the idea that people could be as clever and as subtle as they were uh, 70 years ago or 80 years ago is really new to them. In fact, I often have to explain, if I feel like I should, I have to explain some of the jokes, even some of the dirty jokes in the film, because they don't quite see those. So the film was also made, uh, as I said, in 1938. So that's the time where, where the Hayes Code had come into effect in, in 1934, which was intended to limit obscenity in film uh and especially especially um ex especially nudity which was actually beginning to happen in the early 30s and other kinds of um depictions of or even allusions to sex so as a result films had to get a lot more subtle about what they were conveying along those those particular themes interestingly enough they didn't have quite as much trouble with violence but that's because we're americans and we get more hung up on sex than violence i guess I have to admit, I have not seen Bringing Up Baby. As I look at your list, there's there's a couple on there that uh, that I have that I haven't seen. But I am interested in the idea of how sometimes, uh, I, I even though I know not to do this, I go into certain things. Uh, sort of like you were talking about with even with rewatching Strange Love, like this idea of oh, this is going to be like the this is going to be kind of antiquated and and sort of out of its out of our time um, and not have anything to uh, to say or do with me. Um, so I, I'm actually, that's one I'm excited to, I'm excited to go and watch at some point. Um, I've heard, uh, heard a lot of, uh, actually listened to a podcast about bringing up baby uh, earlier this year. So it, it's one that I, I haven't seen, but, um, is definitely on my list of things to see. So you had the, um, earliest movie on our list with bringing up baby. So I'm going to go with the most recent. Um, and I'll say this is a movie I've only seen once, but I loved it. And this is an example of, uh, a relatively young filmmaker, I think she's 36 maybe, um, who I at this point just have season tickets for, like whatever she makes, I'm, 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 I wanna go see. And that is uh, Greta Gerwig's movie, Lady Bird from uh, 2017. Uh, I, it's a coming of age story. 
set in Sacramento in the early 2000s. Uh, and it just, I, I think a lot of my, the way that I interact with, with art, whether it's film or visual art or things like that is, it's pretty visceral. It's more like, like I, I keep, I'm actually like pointing to my chest and my stomach right now. Like, like things sort of hit me, uh, hit me in my guts in a kind of way. Um, and it's one of those, one of the things I always tell students when I take them to museums is, cause I think students get kind of worked up about, uh, I don't understand what this is about or what's, what's good and what's not good. And I said, well, don't worry about that. Like stand in the middle of the room and sort of turn around and feel where the, if any piece has gravity that's pulling you towards it. Right. Uh, and, and Lady Bird had that for me. I mean, it, it, what's interesting is it's, uh, I mean, it doesn't match my, my story to, you know, to any degree. I'm not a, I was not a young woman. I um, was in my mid twenties by the time, you know, we were in the, that, that decade of the, the first decade of the 21st century. Uh, but I think I'm, I'm really drawn to, to kind of coming of age stories um, things like that. And I, I loved it. And then uh, Greta Gerwig followed that up with um, uh, Little Women this year, which I really loved. I can tell that I love a movie if I keep thinking about it for weeks and weeks after. And I didn't, ex I mean, I, I didn't expect Little Women to land like that with me and it did. Um, and, and Lady Bird had that same feel. Um, so in 2017, that was the year of Get Out. That was the year that I think The Shape of Water won Best Picture. Um, and I, I really liked um, I really liked Get Out, but Lady Bird was my was the the film I was rooting for that year because I thought that one that was just really special. So I, I have that on my list as an example of somebody who I'm so excited for the next ten years of Greta Gerwig. And the other the other common theme between those two films is uh, Sarshi Ronan uh, is in both of them. And uh, just as you said, you have season tickets for Greta Gerwig. I have season tickets for Sarshi Ronan. Um, any anything that she is in, I will watch and. And that's a whole other way to think about film, of course, which we haven't touched on. And that is that there are certain films I will watch, even if I know they're they're mediocre <laughs> um, right. or haven't gotten strong reviews because of the performance uh, in, in performances in the film. There are certain people I will watch act no matter what they're acting in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Sarchi Ronan also picks good projects. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what's next on your list? Um, let's go to, let, let's go to one of my favorite genres, which is uh, film noir, uh, film noir kind of came of, uh, came of age in the 1940s. And, uh, there's a, a, a debate maybe more among film specialists about whether no film noir is a genre or a style. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I don't really care particularly how, how you want to define it, but, and there are, for me, the, the, the films noir I most enjoy are, are the are kind of the classic detective films. Mm -hmm. um, film noir kind of arose in, in a way as a, as, a, as a response to World War II. Um, one of the common themes in noir is, uh, is, insomnia, is um, amnesia, uh, or people who have uh, forgotten their past or don't want to deal with their past. In fact, this is what's not on my list, but there's a noir called Black Angel in which the uh, detective is hired to investigate a murder. And without giving too much away, I'll give it all away, he discovers in the process of the investigation that he committed the murder. Uh, oh, wow. doesn't remember. Um, anyway, the film I picked for as one of my quintessential films noir is Out of the Past, um, 1948. And uh, one of the reasons I picked that is, uh, it, to me, it's kind of, it's got all the elements of, of noir. Uh, and it has the quintessential film noir actor in it, which is, is Robert Mitchum. 
uh, and he plays somebody who has been involved in the past with a gangster in an early role by Kirk Douglas, uh, playing a really despicable snake of a gangster. Um, and Mitchum's character has tried to escape his past, and he's gone from New York to California, where he's going to, where he's lost himself in a, in a running a gas station, and just one of these chance encounters, which is so typical of noir. It's it looks like chance, but maybe it's fate. Uh, and his past comes back to literally uh, haunt him and uh, take him down a road he doesn't want to go down. He gets in, involved with a classic femme fatale. Um, it's just a, it's just a tremendously satisfying uh, film to to watch. I have to admit that is another one I've never heard of that movie. So I that that's one that sounds great. I'm I'm that sounds really exciting to uh, to put on my list of things to see as well. Uh, well yeah, I don't have I don't have a lot of uh, film noir experience. Um, I mean. I've probably seen films that fit within the the category in the genre, but uh, I've never done a sort of deep dive into thinking about that as a genre. One of my favorite lines in the film, which I think kind of sums up the whole world of film noir, is uh, the Mitchum character is down by the he's fishing with uh, with his love interest, and you know, of course, this is doomed. And uh, he has somebody who helps him out in the garage, and the guy comes along to uh, tell him that there's somebody there to see him. And uh, she says, she, uh, the, the girlfriend asked Mitchum, she says, is, is there anything wrong? And he says, maybe not. Hmm. As opposed to maybe. Right, right. <laughs> in other words, there's something, yeah, there's something wrong. Uh, but yeah. maybe, maybe not. Yeah. And that's just the way noir works. Well, next on my list uh, is a movie that when, when you were talking about the friend who was telling you about uh, A Clockwork Orange, uh, I was thinking about my experience of seeing this film. Um, and that is the 1994 uh, film Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was, let's see, I was, I think I was a senior in high school. No, I was a junior in high school uh, when I saw this. Um, and just like you were saying, this is, it was the first time that I walked out of a movie and I was like, I, I didn't know a movie could do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I and, it, and it was the thing where it was like, oh, this is, this is an art form, not, this is an inner, I mean, it is, it, it's an unbelievably entertaining movie. But it's also it is also a work of art, um, and and I, the I, I, it's a movie that I've gone back to again and again and again, and I'm I'm deeply interested in the kind of like searching spiritual journey of of Jules, um, you know, <laughs> as he has this as he has this experience, and even how the story's told out of order. Mm -hmm. um, but but it was. It, it helped it helped crystallize in my mind what I look for, the experience that I'm chasing when I watch a movie. Um, and it's the it's 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 really hard, but but the experience I'm chasing is like I want to see something I haven't seen before. Uh, and I don't mean like I want to see a movie I hadn't seen before, but I want to see something done that I just have never I, I just have never seen. And and Pulp Fiction, and you know, I realize that um uh people who are more versed you know pulp fiction is leaning on a lot of other stuff but as a as a 17 year old i didn't know any of that and it was just like this is this is this brand new thing you know and, and, and tarantino was sort of collaging together lots of uh lots of other things but but that sent me on it changed the trajectory of how i looked at movies and instead i was like i just want to go see a movie where I walk out saying, I, I didn't know a movie could do that or I've never seen that before. I remember having that same feeling when I saw uh, the movie Memento. Oh yeah. Just, just feeling like it, I, I couldn't stop talking about it. And it was, but all I could say was like, I, I, I've never seen that before. I've never seen 
uh, a movie where the in in the case of Memento, where the filmmaker gives you the condition that the character has, mm -hmm. and you start to forget things that you know and things like that. But, but yeah, but Pulp Fiction for me, and it's again that's a movie I've of Tarantino's. He's another person I have season tickets for. I think I've seen everything except uh, the Grindhouse movie. I've I've never seen, but I think everything else I have probably seen everything multiple times. Um, and I love, I, I love most of the stuff that, that, uh, that he's done. And this was the thing that sort of set me off on that, on that path. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's as a film viewer, it's maybe one of the most ex important experiences. And I went into that movie with zero knowledge about it. Uh, my brother and I went, uh, I think he was back from college. Um, and we went and I didn't know anything about the movie. I sat down and it just happened to me and it was amazing. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I very vividly remember going to see um, Pulp Fiction when it came out. Um, I, I can even picture the theater I went into, and I had the same experience, uh, Sam, in that when the, the minute those opening credits hit me, it was like, wow, I'm, I'm in for something really, uh, really interesting here. And of course, what's, what is interesting about Tarantino is that he, he takes you know, his, his fond memory and encyclopedic knowledge of film genres that are regarded as very lowbrow and non-artistic, that he trans transforms those into really highly wrought and yet completely entertaining works of art. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that irritates me about Tarantino's reputation, not about Tarantino himself, but you say Tarantino and people right away right, right, talk about, oh, you know, extreme violence or bloody scenes or all that. But when I think about Tarantino, I think about amazing scripts and yeah. uh, and really smart writing like kill bill volume two is, is mostly talking um and it's really it's really interesting dialogue i mean i i go to a tarantino film as much for the dialogue and the performances as i do for the the plot and the images oh yeah yeah like uh, i presume you saw once upon a time in hollywood this yeah exactly yeah yeah like and that was I mean, what's funny is my, I think my mom was asking me about it and she was asking if it was violent. And I said, well, it's not until it is. And, but yeah. like everything up until the last probably 10 minutes of the movie is it's, it's utterly Tarantino, but without some of those trappings that people sometimes associate with, associate with him. Like I loved uh, the hateful eight thinking about like, mm. it's interesting because he actually writes stage plays like the hateful eight could be a stage play mm -hmm. reservoir dogs i think would be the greatest stage play it would be so much fun to see that because it's basically on one set in in this yeah. warehouse yeah. um you know it's, some of his movies are a little more sprawling but yeah i mean he he so he's won best adapted screenplay twice uh and his uh he he said one of his goals is to have that award renamed the tarantino that <laughs> that, that best adapted screenplay is the award that should be named after him because i think honestly almost everything he's done I feel like is worthy of an award for screenplay. Mm -hmm. So what's next on your list? We're at number four here. Uh, let's see. Let's um, let's go to Hitchcock. Um, and uh, I'm not a I'm not a, a huge Hitchcock film, but I admire a lot of Hitchcock's films, and I do think that the film I put on my list for for him is is Vertigo. Um, and for a couple of reasons, first of no, all, gonna, but before before you say more, I'm going to tell you I've seen this movie a couple times, and it's it's always really highly ranked. It's in the top six or seven on the AFI list. It, it, this one, one never lands with me. It's been it's it's been uh, it's actually at one point you know there's Film Institute does their list every ten years, and I think Vertigo displaced Citizen Kane at one point. It's it's usually up there number huh. one one or two. Yeah, 
Um, it's I, I guess what I what I like about it is I mean I I, I like psychologically complex films and mm -hmm. uh, and and films that that involve mystery, which is what's happening with with Vertigo. Um, but it also I think it it rests on the performance of Jimmy Stewart as uh, this retired detective who has the vertigo of of the title. Right. Uh, the film opens by showing you why he has vertigo. And there is a, actually there's a, there's a film noir element to the film in that he's kind of torn between these two women. He's mm -hmm. uh, you know he has this friend who he actually asked to marry him back in college, who is appropriately named Midge um, mm -hmm. because he actually kind of ends up treating her like an annoying insect. Um, and then he's drawn to this other woman who this woman of mystery that he's been hired to to follow around in what turns out to be a kind of um, a kind of con game. Um, so, so it's the fact that I, I guess it's the, it's the psychological complexity. It's his, um, as is often the case in, um, Hitchcock's films, this is definitely uh, even more obviously true in Rear Window. The film is to a certain extent about filmmaking, um, because sure. he, has, he has this image of this woman whom he thinks has died, uh, and he tries to recreate her. Uh, and there's a there's a really uh, kind of seminal shot in, in the history of cinema where uh, Hitchcock does this 360 degree pan around this woman, and it's and, and it's it's a, it's a film that also kind of embodies and critiques the notion of the male gaze that the, mm -hmm. the, the woman is there as an object for the man to possess uh, literally through through uh, through his sight. So I don't know, and and then the, just the fact that it's San Francisco. Right. Uh, and I've gone to San Francisco with a friend for the uh, there's a film noir festival out there every year, and we visited some of the Vertigo sites. Um, so it's I don't know to me it's it's got all those all those elements together. Well, I will say this: although it's a movie that that never seems to land exactly with me, it's definitely indelible in my mind. Like as you're talking about this, I can see every shot of the movie. I could like it's. And and I I think about it a lot. I think that's maybe that means it's good. Is that I I think about it a lot. I just it's one of those that I, I something about it just didn't land right with me. Um, and it's maybe one. It's I'm sure it's one that I'll revisit again. Uh, I I'm not again like you. I'm not a huge Hitchcock fan. Although there are some that I I really like. Um, uh, I saw Psycho for the first time in the last two years. I'd never seen it. And that was great. Um, I I uh, I like the movie The Rope. I found that I I'm I'm always interested in. Um, I mean, that's sort of a little Leopold and Loby. I'm interested in like perfect murder kind of things um, and and or, or people trying to do that and then and, and it unraveling um, and, and sort of the uh, the psychological part of that. But yeah, there, there's um, Vertigo is one that, again, I think I'll just wrestle with over the course of my life. It's, it just never, never exactly landed uh, with me. I used to feel that way about Rear Window, um, and then I revisited it. I think because I, I decided to teach it, and uh, I ended up liking it a lot more, admiring it a lot more than I had in, in the past. So yeah, you know, and, and movies are like books, as you know, Sam. I mean, you revisit them at different ages, and uh, sometimes you go back to a movie that you loved, and you wonder what 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 in the world did I see in that film? Uh, and other right. times, like I said, it's a movie that's not landed with you, and you watch it, and you say, "Gee, what was I missing all those years ago?" Yeah, I mean the, the 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 perfect book example for me is I'm a huge James Joyce fan, and I remember at 22, uh, 22 and 24, I tried reading Ulysses, and I just I, something about it didn't connect. And then when I was 38, which was about the age Joyce was when he finished it, it became like my favorite book. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, like it made it's like it's like I needed to get older for it to make for it to land yeah. with me. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I will pair that with one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, uh, and that is uh, a movie called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control from 1997 by Errol Morris. So Errol mm -hmm. Morris is a uh, documentary filmmaker, and he makes kind of two kinds of documentaries, and one of them I'm far more a fan of than the other. Um, he 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 won an Oscar for a film called The Fog of War, where he interviews. Uh, it's basically an interview documentary with Robert McNamara. Um, and then he does. He he I think got really famous in the '80s, uh, or first his first big stroke of fame was in the '80s with a movie called The Thin Blue Line. So he has this sort of investigative detective side to him, um, and then this and this highly political side. So he had that. He had a Netflix documentary series. Uh, that I'm blanking on the name of um, came out in the last the last couple of years and it was it was interesting but I prefer that when he does things that seem a little quirkier and stranger <clears throat> so he he's early in his career he made a movie called Vernon Florida in the 70s where he went it's he's just interviewing people in this small town in Florida and I won't get into that too much but there's actually very strange stories behind why he was there. Um, and then he did a movie called The Gates of Heaven mm -hmm. about people who run pet cemeteries. This is also in the mid seventies. Um, and so like on its face, that movie's about pet cemeteries, but what it's really about is about these people and like who, who does this and what does it tell you about them? And so, so that he, I, I find it more interesting when he interviews, uh, maybe a little quirkier people, but tries to give some sort of insight to. Um, to humanity, to the human condition, things like that. He also has a particular way of shooting um, where he shoots all his interview subjects straight on. He actually invented a piece of technology called the Intericon that cr helps create the shot of somebody staring down the barrel of the camera the whole time um, without them realizing that that's what they're doing exactly. So there's a very particular look. Um, he did a great movie called uh, Mr. Death, which uh, where he interviews uh, Fred Leuchter. And I don't want to say anything else. Have you ever seen Mr. Death? No, I haven't. I don't want to say anything else about it. It's it takes a very strange turn partway through. It's fascinating, um, so I would recommend it, but not don't learn anything about it. Just go watch it. Okay. Um, but but Fast Cheap and Out of Control is my favorite Errol Morris movie and one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, in this movie, Morris interviews four people who are um, kind of unique geniuses in in these strange fields. So one of them is a robotics expert at MIT. One is an expert on naked mole rats. One is a, a topiary gardener in Florida. Uh, and one is a lion tamer. And, and the whole film is these four people talking about what they do intercut. And it ends up being this meditation on, uh, I think, I think it's a meditation on creation and God and humanity and the mind and what does it mean to create? It's, uh, it's, it's a film that I've seen, I don't know how many times and I'll, I could watch it every day. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just deeply interested in the kind of ideas that come out when you just, um, juxtapose things. You just have these, this person talking and then this person talking, and they're clearly not talking about the same thing, but, um, but I feel like it 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 compiles to create to raise some interesting questions and make some interesting statements. So uh, that is that is one of my all time favorite documentaries. Well, as long as you talk, you were saying something about quirky and strange. Um, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna shift to uh, unless you want to talk a little bit more about Thimble, about Earl Morris. Nope, that's that's I'm good for now. Okay. Um, no, so I'm gonna shift. Uh, my my quirky or strange uh, last film uh, takes us to uh, foreign films, uh, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, and so I'm gonna pick Bergman's Persona from 1966. Um, there's actually an origin story for me with this film as well. I, I remember going to the Yale Film Society back when I was in, in high school. So this would be the, the mid seventies. And there was a poster for Persona outside the theater. And there was just something about the image on the poster that made the film to me uh, to seem very mysterious and, and I suppose very European. So it kind of fits into what you were asking about earlier, Sam, about you know watching a film that you had kind of been looking forward to. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though I really knew nothing about it, except it looked really interesting. And all it was, I, I believe it was just the image of Lee Ullman. So the film is, um, it, it's, a, it's a Bergman film that's kind of a, it's hard to describe in terms of plot because it doesn't have a heck of a lot of plot. Um, but there is a plot and it's about Lee Ullman plays an actress who is on stage in a, uh, playing in a classic Greek tragedy, I forget which one. Uh, and, and she suddenly has some kind of episode and she, she goes mute or she refuses to speak. And nobody can quite figure out why she won't talk. She just stops talking. Um, and so she ends up on this, she's sent away for, I suppose what they would have called in the old days, a rest cure. So she's sent away to this island, one of, one of uh, uh, Bergman's favorite places to film in the Northern Sea. She's sent away to this island with a nurse played by B.B. Anderson. And the film becomes a kind of tug of war between the two of them because you have the Ullman character who won't speak um, and the B.B. Anderson character who, in a sense, won't stop talking. Uh, mm -hmm. And the film is as much about how Ullman's silence uh, imposes changes on Anderson. And there's a, there's a, fantastic scene where the same diet where they're sitting across the table from each other and the same uh monologue is delivered from two points of view uh, you see anderson speaking it and then you see Ullman receiving it and it's the exact same scene but it's flipped around oh, um, interesting and 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 ultimately the film raises questions about identity there's another great scene where the two women are standing in front of a mirror uh, next to it, their faces next to each other, and and uh, Bergman blends the faces together, uh, so so they sort of sort of become a composite uh, portrait mm -hmm. of each of them. Um, and and the reason for her breakdown and then her later recovery, it, it's it's never it's never explained in any kind of a psychological pat way, which is interesting for me because one of the things I struggled with about um, when you mentioned Psycho is that last scene in Psycho where the condition, where uh, his condition is sort of explained by the actor, by a character played by the actor, Simon Oakland. Uh -huh. and, and, and that used to bother me for years because I thought it was so reductive. And then I realized afterwards that Hitchcock was actually, par I think it's a parody of a psychological explanation. I think mm -hmm. the whole point is it doesn't adequately account for why uh, the Anthony Perkins character behaves as he does. Uh, but what's interesting about Bergman's film is it, it really he really doesn't um, offer any explanation for why Ullman's character has done this or why she recovers. But it's also the other layer of the film is, as with Vertigo, it's also a film about, about filmmaking. Um, mm -hmm. It begins with an image of a film uh, stucking, sticking in the gate and, and literally burning up. And that leads to a tra transition in the film. Um, so anyway, it's it's one of those films where. Again, I'm going to bring in my teaching experience. 
I thought, okay, I'm going to do this with my students because I'm going to show this to my students because it's a really important film. I think they need to have watched it. Uh, they're going to hate it. This is going to be a disaster, but it's okay because sometimes as a teacher, you have to have disasters and better plan them than just have them happen. Um, my, my students have always been engaged by the film and they've always been really interested in the film. So even if it sounds kind of like, oh, you know, one of those subtitled uh, foreign films, it's I just think it's really incredibly engaging. Oh, that's that's great. I the only Bergman film I've ever seen is The Seventh Seal, which I really liked. Um, but I, I should uh, persona. I'm just I feel like I'm just writing all these down uh, as a as a list for me to uh, to work through as well. Uh, I'm going to finish my list off also with a foreign film. Uh, and that is the 1987 film Babette's Feast, uh, which I first saw when I was a freshman in college at Bethel in Mary Ellen Ashcroft's um, honors, uh, honors One class. And I remember um, thinking it was good, but I don't know that I fully got it. And then I saw it again as a senior in another class. I was taking um, Film in the Modern Sensibility with Dom Postema and Thomas Becknell, and we watched Babette's Feast. Uh, and Postuma gave a lecture on Kierkegaard, and then I went and read Fear and Trembling, and uh, I was like, oh, this is actually one of the most important things I've ever encountered, because I was, as a senior in college, I was at a point in life where I felt like my life was full of choices, and I was paralyzed by both, both choices and indecision, and then I, and then thinking about this movie, um, and then I went, I went and read the, the, the short story as well that it's based on, um, like, it just, it became sort of this this perfect sense of like um, how to think about those choices and and how to think about grace in those choices and how to think about you know you get the thing you choose and you get the thing you don't choose and um, there's a uh, there's something I also look for in in uh, in art as well and uh, there's a scene in in J D Salinger's Franny and Zoe where. Uh, most of that book is the the two siblings having this kind of heated argument, and there's a point where um, I think I think it's uh, Zoe looks out the window and sees a little girl in the park playing with her dog, and it's like they're having this deep conversation about the meaning of life or something. And he looks out the window and watches this little girl play with the with her dog, and it's like he breaks from that that big picture conversation, and he just says, you know, there are nice things in the world. And it's and like to me, that's the profound moment. Is not the we're having this big conversation, but it's that we need to remember there are nice things in the world. And Babette's feast is one of those. I mean, if you if you're sitting at home right now and in uh, self quarantine and you just want to experience nice things in the world, Babette's feast is is really fantastic. It's also it's a it, it's a movie that um is very moving. It's very funny at times. Uh, it. Uh, it makes us think about how we practice religion in different ways. And uh, it's uh, it's a movie that I haven't seen in a while. It's I want to show it to my kids. I'm waiting for like um, when because I think about, you know, I saw it as a freshman in college and it didn't I didn't get it. So I, I kind of want to wait until like a moment when it's like this is when you need to hear this message. It's also a film you know, in terms of the religious implications, Sam, it's a film that I I think is so profoundly about incarnation and mm -hmm. uh, importance of, of what it means to be embodied and the physical pleasure of sharing food, which mm -hmm. is something, of course, that the people who come to the feast think maybe that's a sinful thing to really enjoy right. all, the, all this food. The other thing- It's also get, a great movie about art, just about like like what it means to be an artist. Give me leave to do my utmost, right? Like that's- uh, Right. That, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, and and on the and the, and the other the other Christian value that I that I love in the film is just just what it means to be hospitable. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the feast is an image of the Last Supper in, in a lot of respects. Um, I agree. I mean, I, th that's a film that really resonates. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So, uh, so we've gone through our list, uh, 10 movies from 1938 to 2017. Uh, we, we got to, we have to get moving here, but just real quick, is there anything that you notice about the list? Any glaring omissions, anything that surprises you? Well, I could think about a lot of glaring omissions in terms of some of the other uh, directors uh, and films that I that I that I really love. Um, I didn't uh, I've alluded to, but I didn't sneak in Orson Welles, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a nice connection between that and Bobette's Feast, and that Isaac Dinesen was Welles's favorite author. Uh, and oh, fact, really? Yeah. In fact, he um, uh, he shot a film called The Immortal Story. It's actually a short one-hour film for French TV based on one of her stories. And he had another film, another story of hers that he was trying to adapt, but never, never got the, the money for. Um, the other, the other um, omission for me, although I alluded to this with Eraserhead, is David Lynch. Uh, he's another director that I that I absolutely love. And then you alluded to Christopher Nolan's Memento. Uh, Nolan is another one I would have liked to have talked about. Um, you may not know the film that came before Memento. His first. Oh, film, I do. Following, which I think is. Yes. You know that's that that's where he experiments with the technique, as you know, that he uses in, in Memento. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I admire about Nolan is, like Kubrick, um, he's somebody who was able to make films and Tarantino able to make films that have a uh, broad audience appeal, but at the same time, really bear watching uh, closely again and again. Yeah, I, to to me, the 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 two names that didn't show up on my list that surprised me was I don't have a Coen Brothers movie and they're probably my favorite film. That's probably my real desert Island film. Filmmakers would be, would be the Coens. Uh, and then um, I love, and I think it's mostly like thinking about what I would want to be watching now. Like I love the movie apocalypse now. And I love the, the documentary Coppola's wife made about apocalypse now uh, hearts of darkness. Um, those are two of my favorite movies and those, neither of those made it on here either, but um but but yeah, so so I feel like Coppola and the Coens for me are are two other filmmakers that I really love that that don't show up here. Uh, Barrett, let oh go ahead. I definitely agree with you on that. Both both uh, both the Coen brothers and the Coppola and the documentary, the, the Heart Hearts of Darkness, in some ways is even just as good as Apocalypse Now. Oh, it's essential if you're going to watch Apocalypse Now to watch that. Yeah, uh, let's pivot to our recommendation for this week. Uh, what film should we be watching? Well, um, what I wanted to do with this recommendation is, um, as you had suggested, Sam, I, I wanted to limit myself to uh, options that people could watch on both Netflix and Amazon. So that, that limited me a little bit. There are some things I really wanted people to see that was only on one platform or the other. Um, but I'm going to go with uh, what might be kind of a safe and in, in, uh, even a cliche choice, but I'd like to watch Groundhog Day and talk about that. Um, I love it. Uh, one of the things I love about Groundhog Day is um, it, it's difficult to find comedies that are both comedic and thoughtful at the same time and thought provoking. And to me, that's the way Groundhog Day works. Um, several years ago, I don't know how this happened. I got invited to show a film for a group uh, that were uh, involved in a seminary conference on transformative education or uh, transformational education. Uh, and I, we sh I, I showed Groundhog Day and talked about that because in a way it's a film about how do people learn to become better people. So there's kind mm -hmm. of an ethical element of the film. But also in terms of our lives right now, um, we are sort of living the same day over and over. 
um, we're in the same spot every day. And uh, in fact, we've actually been encouraged. I've been encouraged by my pastor to adopt a regular routine uh, and to kind of bring structure to each day. So I think Groundhog Day kind of helps us think about what do you do with sameness and how at the same time can sameness lead to change? Because I think we're all asking ourselves, uh, when is it going to be normal again? Or what is the new normal going to be? And I think Groundhog film is a a film that kind of pushes you in that direction. Um, I also happen to like um, uh, Bill Murray's performance in the film. Uh, I think it's one of his better his, his better roles, and it's a really smartly written film as well. All right, well, that is our recommendation for this week. So we're going to step out of the video store with Groundhog Day in hand. We will be back next week to talk about Groundhog Day and get our next recommendation. Uh, if you watch the movie, please share your thoughts with us. You can email us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Or if you're a little more bold and you want to uh, record a little audio on your phone or on your computer and send the uh, send the file to channel3900 at gmail.com, uh, you can join in the conversation. Barrett, thanks so much for, uh, for joining me in this little adventure. Thanks, Sam. It's been great. And I hope people do participate because you don't want to listen to me talk all the time. That's right. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.